You're listening to Asia Pack Unwrapped, first broadcast on the 13th of September 2015 on Monocle 24. Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. From our studios in Tokyo, Hong Kong and Singapore, and right here at Midori House in London, this is Asia Pack Unwrapped, in association with ANZ, your unmissable weekly briefing from the world's most dynamic region. Coming up in the program, the burgeoning tourism sector is pushing many airlines throughout Asia back into profit. A lot of the demand that's coming out is particularly from China. The Chinese market hasn't really missed a beat. And there's a lot of people uh, coming and holidaying through Asia and other regions as well. Yeah, that's really, I think, what has driven uh, particularly the Chinese carriers' results. Plus, how sought after is Danish design among discerning Hong Kong shoppers? I think our core set of customers are people in Hong Kong. And I think that's good news uh, for us in two part. I think people in Hong Kong are in general more accepting of our a little more contemporary clean lines design. And later in the show, we'll examine what factors make for an up and coming neighborhood amongst trendy Koreans. There's definitely more of a young vibe here now. You have a lot of, uh, let's say, young creative types that have opened up restaurants and other small shops. So, you know, people are out in the streets. That's all to come on Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ on Monocle 24, starting now. Welcome to the show. I'm Ben Ryland. Quite the action-packed show we've got for you in store today. First up, let's turn our attention to the skies above Asia and the Pacific. Despite some rather turbulent times in recent years, the aviation sector in many Asian markets is seeing a return to profitability. Among the carriers seeing an improvement are Philippine Airlines, Malaysia's Air Asia, Bangkok Airways and the budget airline carrier Cebu Pacific. So what's behind the improving results? Well, joining me now is Ellis Taylor from Flight Global in Singapore. Ellis, thank you for joining us. First, can you tell us what are the main carriers here that are feeling the impacts? The main uh, airlines that are returning to profit are those based in North Asia, are led by the big Chinese carriers like China Southern, Air China and China Eastern Airlines. And we're also seeing stronger results from uh, the Japanese carriers, Japan Airlines and uh, All Nihon and then further south, you've had uh, Qantas has had a dramatic turnaround from a major loss last year uh, to what's been a very respectable profit this year. On the flip side of that, though, there are still some carriers, particularly in Southeast Asia, that are still in the red, such as AirAsiaX and Thai Airways. But we've seen they are both putting forward uh, big plans to try and address that situation, which should, in theory, uh, lead them back into a profit sometime soon. So obviously domestic market factors will be playing their role in all of this too. But what are some of the higher level issues at play here? The big one really has been um, just growing tourism and growing demand. We've also seen fuel prices have come down quite a lot. And so that's bringing down some of the cost pressures on some of these airlines. So it's always a good mix you get when there's a lot of demand and costs are coming down. So that's really helping, particularly those airlines that are, are quite big, you know, they're seeing that uplift in fuel. And uh, a lot of the demand that's coming out is particularly from uh, China. The Chinese market hasn't really missed a beat. And there's a lot of people uh, coming and holidaying through Asia and other regions as well. And, uh, you know, that's really, I think, what has driven uh, particularly the Chinese carriers' results. 
Now, this all comes in spite of some recent events that have impacted the sector quite negatively, such as the Bangkok bombing, for one. Is this proof, do you think, that the regional market is sturdy and quite resilient? Yeah, certainly it's shown to be that way over the last few years. The latest bombing doesn't appear to have had much an effect, uh, at least yet. Uh, what we've seen time and time again in Thailand particularly, you know, we have government instability there and many other events, is that a lot of people still really want a holiday there. And to be fair, the government has a big concern to keep it that way. And so they've been doing a lot to show that it's a secure place, that it's uh, you know, still good for people to go on holiday in Thailand. And it seems that most travellers are happy with that. So I think overall, yeah, that demonstrates that the regional market here is quite resilient and quite sturdy. Now, we've been hearing about the rise in the Asian tourism sector and how that spike is having various impacts throughout the region. Do you think this fits with that wider trend? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's, uh, throughout Asia, there's been a lot of effort on marketing and going after new niches of tourists because a lot of people are looking for quite unique experiences and, you know, there's a lot of different geography in Asia and so it offers a lot of different things to different people. The other major factor that's at play as well is you've had a lot of Southeast Asian currencies that have come under pressure, they've depreciated against the US dollar and to a lesser extent the Chinese yuan. And so that's made it a lot more attractive for a lot of travellers. So, you know, we've seen that uh, a lot of people are taking up holidays in places like Bali, Thailand and Malaysia at present where those currencies have been affected. And, uh, you know, for the short term, I think that will continue for some time. Thanks, Alice. We'll leave it there. Alice Taylor there from Flight Global, joining us from Singapore. As we just heard, the rising tourism sector throughout Asia and the Pacific is impacting economies throughout the region. But while that's undoubtedly good news for many, the uncertainty gripping China's stock market is throwing a bit of a spanner into the economic machine. Australia is just one nation feeling the effects, with its reliance on commodity prices quite a tender topic. Leo Shanahan is from the Australian newspaper in Sydney, and he joins me here at Midori House now. Leo, welcome to the show. First, how is the economic news coming out of China trickling into the business commentary in Australia? Yeah, well, obviously, the dramatic drop-off in commodities prices has affected both confidence in the Australian economy and overall in the Australian dollar. You've got what they call kind of this dual movement away from China or some fears about Chinese stability, not that it's going to collapse tomorrow, but a few like blips on the radar economically in China. And because the manner in which the Australian economy is so tied to the Chinese economy at the moment, for better or for ill, it means that Australia, you know, is invariably drawn with that and then a lack of confidence. And you've also got the resurgence of the American economy. Once again, it's not trumpeting like it used to, but it, it is definitely improving. You've got improving jobs figures. You've got talk of the Fed lifting interest rates and money is going back into the United States. So that's improving the United States currency. And as a result, money is flowing out of Australia. And as a result of that, you've got a drop in the Australian dollar. So this is obviously something that's been making international headlines for a while, but there's a degree of uncertainty here for Australians, isn't there? I mean, what's pushing this as something that people over there should actually be keeping their eye on? Yeah, well, it is interesting because it's not entirely clear whether it's a negative or a, or a positive thing for Australians, you know, in their shopping habits or their savings, um, or their spending generally. 
I think that Australians are concerned on one level, you know, there's superficial stuff, for instance, like travel. You know, I've been traveling in Europe for the last <laughs> month or so, and I certainly noticed the drop off, even against the euro. I mean, you know, if you can't get uh, a good price against the euro at the moment, you're in trouble. <laughs> An Australian dollar can't get a good price against the euro, and the euro was in all sorts following the Greek crisis. So I think that uh, Australians are struggling, you know, understanding that again because they were so they had such a dominant place in the world economy there for a while, where you know it was at one point over one US dollar, you'd get a dollar two or something, and now it's back to you know six-year lows where it's it's difficult to travel again. It's costing you money. Retail is a classic one. Online retail was huge, huge boom in Australia because Australians do pay more for things. And, you know, quite rightly, Australians turn around and say, well, hold on, why, why should I pay more in a shop when I can order it from the United States or Europe and pay a lot less? All of a sudden, that value is not there in the way it used to be. Uh, so they're very basic kind of you know, ways that people kind of notice. And and prices generally can go up because of the import costs. So it's going to arguably add to an overall increase uh, cost of living, which the economists say was, you know, is it was already happening. But it's not necessarily all bad news for Australians, is it? I mean, on an everyday level, there will be positives coming out of this, won't there? Yeah, there's definitely positive impacts. And as I said, it's a the Reserve Bank for a long time has been arguing the Australian dollar was overvalued. So they're actually saying that this is a good thing for the Australian economy, that the dollar is being devalued. It was seen as yeah, overvalued and an overall weight on the Australian economy. But basic things that people would notice, for example, tourism in Australia, whilst it might be harder to travel, tourism in Australia is will increase and has, is looking to increase both domestically Tourism, so people, Australians who may have gone to America, may have gone to Europe because it's cheaper, will now stay home and travel and more people are likely to come to Australia. So Americans would return, for instance, Europeans more, much more likely to return and, and the Chinese as well. I mean, that's a booming area. So with that, you have a concurrent kind of boom in other, you know, hospitality areas, services, industries that come with increased tourism. Others would be uh, foreign investment. So there's a funny thing in, in whilst people might think that foreign investment would drop off in Australia because of the dollar, what you have is super funds who have invested, largely invested in foreign markets. So you can have a lot of money in the US dollar in banks or chips or, or shares, blue chip shares, and actually these have increased value for Australian investors. So the benefit of this is that whilst your own dollar might be declining, if your super fund has large investments in foreign dollars, namely US, euro and pounds, that's going to increase in value. So your return for your super fund is actually going to be really good, even though the markets themselves might look, the Australian markets might not look great. Super fund returns are actually likely to increase. Well, it'll be interesting to see how things play out. We will, of course, be keeping a close eye on it all. Leo Shanahan there from the Australian newspaper in Sydney. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped on Monocle 24 in association with ANZ. Still to come on today's show, we'll ask what makes a trendy neighbourhood for discerning Koreans. But up next, we'll talk about Japanese goldfish. Yes, you heard right. Stay tuned. Thinking of starting your own business? Want to make your company a better place to work? Keen to sharpen those ambitions? Or just like some nicer business cards? Well, we know a handsome primer that will take you from fledgling firm to established brand. 
The New Monocle Guide to Good Business is a 300-page-plus book packed with inspirational stories, wise advice, places to locate your new HQ, and of course, great photography and illustrations too. Head to monocle.com to order your copy now or visit any of our stores. The Monocle Guide to Good Business is a book that will show you how to do a job you really love, create a modest dynasty, use your hands and your brain, and even take your dog to work. Come on, it's time for a change. You're listening to Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. I'm Ben Ryland. We'll take a dive now into an aquarium with a slight difference. Since 2011, the Art Aquarium exhibition has made a very novel use of goldfish to showcase a stunning and very innovative approach to art and technological design. Monocle's Asia editor-at-large, Kenji Hall, was both entranced and perhaps slightly puzzled as he browsed this year's display with our Tokyo Bureau Chief, Fiona Wilson. Fiona and I are here at the Art Aquarium 2015. This is the fifth year of, I guess it's just a display of goldfish, a combination of art and light and goldfish, if that properly explains it. And we're standing in front of a display called the Infinitorium. Yeah, I'm just laughing at your description of it as a, a display of goldfish. I mean, this thing is, uh, it's quite breathtaking. It, it's The whole show is the work of uh, a man who describes himself as an aquatist, uh, Hidetomo Kimura. I think he's cornered the market in, in the light and goldfish art show. And what we're standing in front of is a whole series of tanks stacked up on top of each other with water overflowing. And each tank is full of the most amazing goldfish. I mean, I've never seen varieties of goldfish like this. They're very strange shapes and, and the lighting is really quite spectacular. And also, as you can hear, there's this pretty loud soundtrack to the whole event. In the evenings, apparently, they have DJs doing shows and they serve cocktails as well. And it, it seems kind of an appropriate environment for that. The poor goldfish, though, <laughs> are bombarded with these, you know, multicolored lights and, and just we're surrounded by different shaped fish bowls, really. You have the, the, the tiny, tiny goldfish, bright, bright orange, to the, uh, the fairly large you know, ones that would probably more properly resemble carp. I guess the goldfish is a descendant of a carp. We've just been reading the, um, the information boards about how the goldfish history dates back 2,000 years. The, they were first introduced to Japan in the 16th century. I mean, there's a display behind us. It's a, a lotus tank. It's a lotus flower done as a tank with hundreds of goldfish in it you know, changing light display. I'm just wondering if it's very stressful for the fish. The other thing to say is there are so many people here. I mean, we had to stand in a queue in the basement of the building before we could even get up to the front door. So this is an incredibly popular show. And I mean, we've been reading figures. Millions of people have seen this show over the years. And actually, for the first time ever, it, it was shown in Milan this year, um, this summer. And apparently it was a big hit there as well. But I mean, there's no shortage of people in Japan who want to look at goldfish. And I think that's the thing because I've seen a lot of these goldfish at a uh, tropical fish center not far from my house. Uh, and so he hasn't really done anything all that creative in, in his selection of fish, but I think what he's done is he's repackaged it in a way that uh, the masses will pay a thousand yen per ticket, which I suppose is about eight euros to see goldfish under these um, ever-changing lights. Yeah, I mean, I'm impressed with your local aquarium. I have to say, I haven't seen goldfish like this. 
There are some that are really large, pretty lumpy, quite strange looking if I'm honest and a bit creepy. I mean I think the whole effect is, is really spectacular with the lights, the dry ice, the music. Um, it's not something you see every day, that's for sure. It finishes on the 23rd of September, it's been running since the end of July um, and I, I can imagine it has done incredibly well. I mean, it, it's, I'd heard about it, I'd never been, so I, I was you know, quite intrigued to come and see it and you know, that everyone says look out for these long queues, so uh, you know, it's obviously one of the big shows of the summer. We were reading earlier that this is one of the big events of the summer in Tokyo and now that I'm here I can believe it, but it's goldfish. Well, I think Kimura-san might take exception to that. I mean, in his blurb at the beginning, you know, he clearly has quite a strong uh, affinity <laughs> with the goldfish. Uh, you know, he, t he went off on flights of fancy of, about the, uh, the relationship between man and goldfish, which I have to say, I'd never given that much thought to, I'll be honest. I might reconsider that. But, you know, it's certainly true that Kingyo goldfish have a very, I don't know, there's a sort of emotional connection here. They make people think of the summer. If you go to festivals here, you can win goldfish take them home they probably won't last very long but it, it you know children like to catch them at these festivals and there is a definitely a it, it connects to a sort of historical side of Japan I think and I think we've reached the end of the exhibit so um, you say we head off for a Kingyo cocktail <laughs> are you up for the art aquarium cocktail make mine a double Kenji Hall and Fiona Wilson from our Tokyo bureau there admiring a rather genius way to keep goldfish in Tokyo It's an exciting time here at Midori House, as we've just released our brand new hardback print volume to bookshelves everywhere. The Monocle Guide to Cozy Homes is a survey of everything you need to build the residence you want. From architects to furniture makers and design store owners to gardeners, it's an introduction to interesting people with ideas that are built to last. But regardless of your outlook on how to cultivate that indelible feeling of cosiness at home, there are some common rules that must be followed. One key element is, of course, a sharp eye for design when it comes to choosing a piece of furniture. Aaron Chin knows a thing or two about that. He's the general manager of Bow Concept in Hong Kong, a Danish contemporary furniture store. We sent Kurt Lin from our Hong Kong bureau along to the store for a browse and to sit down in one of those beautiful Hans J. Wegner round chairs for a chat. Bow Concept is a long-time uh, furniture brand. Uh, started out as a manufacturer just by two guys in a, in a little furniture shop in Denmark in a small town called Herning. And fast forward maybe around 60 years, uh, since 1952, now we have around 300 stores in the world. And what we do is we offer uh, a full range of home furniture and home decoration and accessories for people who are looking for um, affordable designer and uh, coordinated furniture. So what makes a home cozy? I think what makes a home cozy is something that is different for everybody. But in general, I think we do get this question a lot in our shop. And I think the few things that really make a home cozy is, uh, first of all, the lighting. I think a lot of times when you look at a catalog, our catalog, uh, for example, you might think that you like the setting a lot. But a lot of times it's actually the lighting that you like a lot. And it's the furniture pieces, yes, the accessories, yes, that's important. But I think the lighting is also very important. So, for example, uh, warm light bulbs instead of cold ones, uh, small investments, uh, huge impact. Maybe different lighting sources, more than one lighting sources. And other things are generally warm colors, a lot cozier than cold colors. Uh, colder colors like, you know, like a blue may make 
setting uh, your home look bigger and airier, which is maybe what you want. But I think for a cozy home, yeah, you want to go with warm furniture or warm colors for your furniture, which makes a space look smaller yet cozier. Other things are generally inviting nature into your home. So, you know, simple things like small plants, a bowl of fish uh, may bring life into your home and kind of a fish tank might give your home kind of natural, good uh, light reflections as well. So in terms of running the business, what does coziness mean to you and your business? The definition of cozy is different for different people. So if you're asking me personally, I think that for me, it's a lot of things that you can imagine yourself curling up in. So for example, if you're looking at a couch, can you curl up in it? Are there enough cushions? That's for me. But I think it's very different for different people. I have a colleague who actually prefers her house, uh, no matter, let's say, how much money she makes. She would prefer her house as small as possible. And for our business, I think when we set up our showroom, we're very conscientious of how we set it up and really how cozy it is. It's not the single mantra that we have for our business, but it's something that we bring up over and over again when we we talk with our VMs, when we talk with our stylists, about how do we make this more cozy. And in general, I think it's familiarity and the ability to comprehend something. So when you're looking at our showroom or when we try to design a home for our customers, it's really to see if the customer can understand it very easily. And the less active thought there needs to be in the customer or your head to understand it, the cozier it is because the easier, the more comfortable. And it's furniture that you would want to almost pet. You know, it's a lot of fabrics that make people think it's more cozy or a lot of leathers that are a little more soft. So uh, leathers are more raw. So if you look at our leather collection, we have some that are uh, rougher, that are easier to maintain. But then yet there are others that are softer and more raw, they're less treated. So people would look at that and maybe subconsciously in their heads, they might connect that with nature and what is really in, yeah, in the natural world. And you wouldn't find any hard surfaces that so much. You wouldn't find anything that's too smooth. And that's what people can connect with that they think are cozy. The retail environment in Hong Kong has been going through some like a decreasing trend. And how does it affect your business? I think that it doesn't affect us negatively too much, if at all. Uh, I think our core set of customers are people in Hong Kong. And I think that's good news uh, for us in two parts. I think people in Hong Kong are, in general, more accepting of our a little more contemporary clean lines design uh, than Chinese customers. So I think we we don't rely on mainland Chinese customers that much anyway. And the second part, which I'm hoping, crossing my fingers, that this is going to be true, is that I think the drop in mainland tourism and mainland tourist spending is really more affecting the really high-end goods that you can physically carry back to China. So I think that puts a lot of pressure on jewelry, on apparel, and a little more fast-moving luxury goods. So for us, hopefully that helps us our rent situation into the future as well. That was Kurt Lin there in conversation with Aaron Chin from Bow Concept in Hong Kong. And of course, the Monocle Guide to Cozy Homes is available now via monocle.com. Well, we're reaching the tail end of today's show, but before we head off, let's touch down for a quick wander through the streets of Seoul. Whether it's Samsung or kimchi, Koreans are known for a wide variety of exports around the world. At home, however, they're a discerning bunch. Gentrification has been sweeping Seoul in recent years, pushing many neighbourhoods up in popularity and igniting a new wave of young urban entrepreneurs eager to play a key role in the blooming new movement. 
Jason Struther is Monocle's correspondent in Seoul, and he's rather familiar with one such burgeoning neighbourhood. Jason, tell us more. A neighbourhood in Seoul that's pretty much come out of nowhere in the past few years is Hanamdong. It's located in pretty much the smack dab centre of the capital in the Yongsan district. Uh, it's kind of nestled in between Namsan, or South Mountain, and the Han River. So it's a really great part of the city that is uh, from Hanamdong. You can pretty much get anywhere throughout Seoul. So Jason, what are some of the key factors that trendy Koreans look for when we talk about up-and-coming new urban areas? I think Hanamdong really began to take off back in 2011. That's when the Blue Square Theatre opened. Now, this is a a performing arts theatre. You have a lot of travelling Broadway shows or Korean musicals that perform there. And when that theater opened, it kind of sparked the redevelopment of the whole area. And then you started seeing restaurants open, boutique clothing shops, tons of cafes, and a lot of other nice businesses, small businesses have come into the area. Before, Hanamdong was kind of a mixed bag. There It was home to ambassadors and other diplomats and foreign executives, kind of in one part of it. But it also had a lot of dingy, girly bars and uh, ugly tourist restaurants that busloads of Japanese and then Chinese tourists would uh, pile into on weekends. But that atmosphere has completely changed, and it's a very pleasant community now. And how much has the neighbourhood changed over recent years then? And how would you describe that feeling there now? There's definitely more of a young vibe here now. You have a lot of, uh, let's say, young creative types that have opened up restaurants and other small shops. So, you know, people are out in the streets. I mean, uh, a few months back, I went to more or less a flea market that was on one of the tiny alleys here. And, you know, it was it was very pleasant. It's not a normal scene that you would see in Seoul where people, you know, kind of stick to themselves. You know, but before this gentrification, uh, you know, it was mostly elderly Koreans, families, and unfortunately, as what happens with gentrification, a lot of those people were priced out. And other smaller businesses, you know, your local uh, kimbap restaurants and, uh, you know, other mom and pop kind of places that had been around for perhaps decades had to move out because of the rising uh, property values. But overall, the atmosphere here is, is very positive and lively. Now, you've been living in Seoul for some time. Overall, do you think this kind of gentrification has a positive impact on the city and the quality of life for the people who live there? You know, Ben, I've lived here in Seoul now for nine years, and in that time, I have seen the complete character of neighborhoods change what you know it seemed overnight, not only in terms of their structures, but just the people who, who frequent them. Overall, I, I'd say it was a good thing. I, I live by another district called Itaewon, which a decade ago was more or less a base town for uh, the U.S. military, which has a facility nearby. You know, Koreans stayed, you know, very far away from there. There was a lot of fear about crime and, and harassment from U.S. soldiers. Now, Itaewon is a very popular nightlife spot and kind of a global food hub here in Seoul. So I think that 
that a lot of neighborhoods have improved. Um, you know, you have a lot of young Koreans that have moved in from outside of Seoul or have gone out on their own, moved out from their families and, you know, moved into these once less developed neighborhoods and have really uh, spruced them up. So I, I think all in all, while, of course, gentrification has its downside, I think the quality of life in these neighborhoods has significantly improved. Jason, thanks as ever for joining us. Jason Strother there, Monocle's correspondent in Seoul. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. The show was produced by our studios in Tokyo, Hong Kong and Singapore and by me, Ben Ryland, here at Midori House in London. Nina Norick was our editor, and Kurt Lin was our researcher. We're back at the same time next week. That's 7am Monday in Sydney, 9am in Wellington, and of course 2200 hours on Sunday here in London. Listen again and find out more at monocle.com, or tune in via iTunes, SoundCloud, or the Monocle app. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped on Monocle 24, in association with ANZ. Until next time, I'm Ben Ryland. Enjoy your week. Enjoy your week.